You don't really need to know, or probably should. I'm Kira Revan, and this, this is the Sunday Seven. In today's episode, polio is back in town, scientists are creating jet fuel from air and water, and the Great Barrier Reef finally has some good news. But first, it was on this day in 1894 that the first wireless transmission of information was demonstrated by Oliver Lodge during a meeting of the British Association at Oxford. Using Morse code, a message was transmitted about 50 metres from the old Clarendon Laboratory to the University Museum. Following the driest eight months since 1976, the first hosepipe bans of the year are now in place. It started a week ago in Hampshire, the Isle of Wight and the Isle of Man, and now Kent and Sussex are joining them. The warm weather and prolonged dry spell have depleted reservoir and river levels, meaning an urgent reduction in demand is needed to keep things flowing smoothly. The ban means filling your paddling pool, putting on your sprinklers and even jet washing your car could land you with a £1,000 fine. We know that people um, who use a hosepipe, it's a thousand litres for an hour, which is more than one person will use in a whole week. So we're just asking people to stop using water for some of those things that perhaps aren't necessary, just while we've not got any rain. That was Southern Water's Chief Customer Officer, Katie Taylor. While there's still enough water for drinking and everyday use, reducing it now could avoid the need for more drastic restrictions later. Gareth Patchett is Head of Water at Manx Utilities. Talking to Sky News, he explained the predicament the Isle of Man is We've had a bit of a a double jeopardy situation where there's very little water coming into the reservoir now and the demand has gone up by about 20%. So what happens is that the reservoir started to drop quite steeply and it's now approaching 65%. In in the unlikely event that it doesn't rain again until October, by by the middle of September we we would start to be in a serious situation. So what needs to be done? While we're not technically in a drought, it's clear we're heading in that direction. Jim Hall is a Professor of Climate and Environmental Risk at the University of Oxford and explained. There is not one single thing which will solve the risk of droughts. Uh, The National Infrastructure Commission has said that we should really be proceeding on three fronts and roughly equally on those three fronts. One is reducing leakage. Two is reducing water demand. And three is making more water sources available for investment in strategic infrastructure. Water companies say there's no direct risk to customer drinking supply, but as more hosepipe bans begin, it's clear we're doing our future selves a big favour. Scientists at the UK Health Security Agency have confirmed that polio has been found in the sewage of nine London boroughs. This comes just weeks after the virus was detected in sewage from northeast London, the first time in 40 years. As a result, all children in London aged 1 to 9 will now be offered an additional dose of the polio vaccine. While we haven't had a clinical case confirmed yet, the virus is beginning to circulate more widely. With vaccination rates in the capital lower than the rest of the country, there's concern that it's only a matter of time before the virus reaches somebody who hasn't already been vaccinated. The risks are low because just about a very large majority of people have been, you know, have been vaccinated adequately to protect them. Uh, but nevertheless, there are people who haven't been uh, vaccinated at all and others that have not been fully vaccinated. Um, and these kind of viruses 
uh, can actually cause polio. Even though they come from the, the vaccine, they can gradually uh, evolve back towards virulence and cause paralysis. So this is something we do need to pay attention to. And in the short term, uh, people should check that their children have had all their scheduled vaccinations, particularly if they're in North London, but elsewhere as well, just to minimise any possible risk. That was Professor Adam Finn of Bristol Children's Hospital and the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. He joined Sky News when news of detection first broke in June. Polio is seen as a disease of the past in the UK after the whole of Europe was declared polio-free in 2003. It's now rearing its ugly head here and in other parts of the world which haven't seen outbreaks in decades. It causes an illness with fever, a bit like flu, uh, and most people who get it uh, make a full recovery without any serious problems. But unfortunately, a minority of people can get this paralysis, usually affects the legs, but it can affect other parts of the body. Um, And in some cases, it's permanent so that uh, you get weakness of one or other of the limbs. Um, People can't move normally. uh, And then even though they recover from the infection, that can on some cases be a permanent And unfortunately, this is already happening. In the United States, polio is showing up in the sewers of New York State and one unvaccinated individual who became infected developed paralysis. It may sound shocking, but some medical professionals are not surprised. Dr. Purvi Parikh is a New York infectious disease physician and shares her thoughts with CBS News. Now in the last two years, um, with the pandemic, childhood immunization rates have dropped dramatically, um, not only uh, due to anti back sentiments, but just due to the fact that people are, were just not getting routine medical care. In addition to sewage surveillance to track the spread of the virus, the hope is that the vaccine booster programme will help stamp out the virus once and for all. Still to come on the Sunday 7, virtual reality to help pain management and environmentally friendly chocolate. Earlier this week, French officials were racing against the clock to save a beluga whale spotted in the River Seine after it strayed thousands of miles from its Arctic Ocean habitat. Describing the animal as worryingly thin, marine conservationists feared the whale could starve if it stayed in the waterway that flows towards Paris. Early on Wednesday, the beluga was lifted out of the river in the first stage of an ambitious rescue operation, but later died. This is not the first time a whale has found itself stuck in a river. An orchid died after being stranded in the Seine just a few months ago and in May last year a minke whale had to be euthanised after it became stranded in the River Thames. But how are they getting lost and why does it keep happening? To answer these questions and more we spoke to Nicola Hodgins, the Research Coordinator at Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Hi Nicola, thanks for joining us. So why do whales get stuck on shores and in rivers in the first place? The majority of time it's purely a navigational error. They've either been compromised their health already beforehand so they're weak and and you know maybe not thinking quite straight and they can end up just you know taking a wrong turn other times when some animals can be following prey and they just don't realize um they're just more intent on where the prey is as to, to actually where they're going they can sometimes get stuck in in kind of small locks or as you say up rivers and other times again it just complete disorientation um there could be some kind of noise It's predominantly seems to be military sonar and also sonar which is used for oil and gas um, exploration. 
and that can cause animals to become completely disorientated and, and therefore they don't actually know where they are and where they're swimming. And then that's how they can end up in a habitat that they're not, they're not used to being in. What are the dangers for the whales in this predicament? Simply that they're, not, they're out of their habitat. They're not in habitat which is suitable to, to, to them as a species. And there's a reason that we find different species in different habitats, whether it's cold water, tropical. So different species are suited to different habitats. Um, and that can be to do with the salinity of the water. It can also do with prey. In an individual who would normally spend its time in the cold Arctic waters, to find itself up a river, first of all, the salinity itself. So being in fresh water is going to affect the, the skin and the, and the health of the individual. Then you've got prey. It's not what it's normal prey that it would normally be eating. And again, it's in a habitat which is it's not meant to be. They're also incredibly social animals and they're, they're used to having other members of their pod around. So that can also be incredibly destructive to that individual to, to find itself on its own when actually it's usually spending time with, with many other pod mates. What can we be doing to minimise these animals getting stranded, sick and sometimes dying? These are kind of isolated incidents um, and I think the bigger question really is that what should we be doing to protect the habitats in the first place you know we should be looking at our choices when it comes to you know plastic pollution we should be thinking of climate change bycatch these these are the issues where we can actually do something it's about being aware of, of your decisions and your choices and and how nothing that we do we're doing in isolation nothing that we're doing is you know everything has a knock-on effect to something else so be aware of your some of your purchasing choices, be aware of um, your own impact on the, the environment and, you know, being able to, to, yeah, just educate yourself as to how you can, you can help and, and do more things that can help the natural world, then that's always a good thing. What do you get when you mix sunlight, water and carbon dioxide? Carbon neutral jet fuel. That's according to scientists at ETH Zurich. So how does this actually work? A chemical process turns sunshine into syngas, a synthetic alternative to fossil-derived fuels like kerosene and diesel. The process involves injecting CO2 and water in a solar reactor and blasting it with concentrated solar heat to split the molecules into hydrogen and carbon monoxide. Aldo Steinfeld, a professor of renewable energy carriers at ETH Zurich, explains. The solar reactor is located at the focus of the solar concentrator. In the solar reactor we have a thermochemical process taking place splitting water and co2 and producing syngas this reaction is highly endothermic requires very high temperature and we are providing this this energy by concentrating solar radiation by a factor of 3000. Syngas can then be easily processed into kerosene, methanol and other hydrocarbons which can be used in global transport or shipping. These synthetic liquid fuels release as much CO2 as they previously absorbed from the air which is what makes them carbon neutral. Philip Furler is the founder and CEO of Synelian, a company which aims to scale up the solar fuel production technology to industrial levels. Our goal is that by 2025 
um, to have the first full-scale commercial solar fuels plant in operation with a production capacity of around 10 million litres of methanol per year. The company has agreed to work with Swiss Air to produce carbon-neutral aviation fuel. Their solar jet fuel production will begin in 2023 with mass commercial production to follow. Still to come on the Sunday 7, a boost for the Great Barrier Reef. Right after this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso. Or maybe try our UK edition. It's all in the usual places. Three. Sorry? Mocklet. It's a completely synthetic chocolate substitute. Ooh. Is there a way of creating environmentally friendly chocolate? Dr. Johnny Drain is a material scientist turned chef who's been looking at the science behind replacing cocoa with other foods such as barley and carrots. What most people don't realise about cocoa and chocolate is that um, about 70% of it is produced in just two countries in West Africa, Ghana and Ivory Coast, in a way that involves outsized water consumption, so about 20,000 litres of water per kilo, and that's way more than beef or soy or avocado. That was Johnny, founder of Win Win Food Labs, speaking with BBC Click. Not only is there an environmental cost to the production of cocoa, there's also the concern of child labour and under-regulated working conditions. Growing up in Birmingham near the Cadbury's chocolate factory, Johnny has also been curious about the taste of chocolate. You know, when you if you put your scientist hat on, it's just a bunch of compounds and it's quite complex but essentially it's just a bunch of compounds and then thinking well can you make that flavour profile starting from something that's not cacao beans, could you start with potatoes or rice. And so what is his alternative chocolate recipe made from? Well we can't tell you the secrets of exactly what we do but our hero ingredients are barley which has this you know rich tradition of being used to make whiskey and beer and also carob and we found using this combination of fermentation and roasting which is 
what you do to turn cacao into chocolate. We've taken that principle, that philosophy, and turned these ingredients into uh, alt-choc. And that magic of mixing all happens in the lab. It starts by melting the fat and combining it with the secret chocolatey ingredients for 48 hours. After that, the chocolate is tempered and moulded into bars. This results in a mixture that contains 15% less sugar than its chocolate equivalent. And it's full of antioxidants and flavonoids. But how does it taste? Click host Laura Lewington lets us know. Mm. Absolutely delicious. But I genuinely wouldn't know that that wasn't cocoa. There are another few companies in this space too, but Win-Win's alternative chocolate bars will go on sale later this year. And we've got a tour of Victoria Falls today, which is going to be lovely scenery. These Canadian surgeons are taking their patients on a trip, but with no drugs involved. Instead of narcotics, plastic surgeon Dr. Ryan Austin offers a virtual reality headset to patients undergoing minor surgeries. Virtual reality really offers a new way that the patients can still have these procedures done safely under a local anesthesia uh, where they're awake, but it gives them the chance to disconnect. It's that disconnection or distraction from the surroundings some experts say dull anxiety and even pain. Dr. James Clarkson, professor of surgery at Michigan State University, is a pioneer of this technique. He's used VR in his practice since 2006. When we studied it, we found it's those patients, about 30% of them, that have an anxiety disorder that give us the highest uh, reduction in anxiety. Research as recent as May found VR not only has application in acute pain management, but also in chronic pain settings. But it's not black and white. Other studies have had different results. Some suggest that whilst VR did reduce paediatric surgery procedure times, it did not lessen pain or anxiety compared to standard care. For Clarkson, though, VR offers an alternative to expensive and sometimes risky sedation. If they don't need to be paralysed and ventilated and they don't need deep invasive surgery, then and there's a large percentage of surgery that falls under this umbrella, then virtual reality can really help us. There's finally some good news for the state of Australia's Great Barrier Reef. Some areas are seeing the highest amount of coral recorded in 36 years of monitoring. The health of the reef is measured in coral cover. That's the proportion of the reef surface covered by sponges, algae or other organisms and it's improved significantly. Almost 90 reefs were surveyed between August last year and March this year. In the North region, the amount of coral cover has increased from 27 to 36% and in in the central part of the reef, cover has jumped from 26 to 33%, and that's the highest level of cover these parts have seen in the last 36 years. Mike Emsley is a senior marine research scientist at the Australian Institute of Marine Science, the body that carried out this research. He spoke to NBC News and says the findings have been very encouraging. We always knew that the reef could recover. I guess the surprising aspect is that it it has continued its upward trajectory despite the, the last two mass coral bleaching events in 2020 and, and this year, 2022. 
But I think that points to the fact that not all bleaching events are equal. So the last two events haven't had the accumulated heat stress that we saw in 2016-17. So today I think what we're seeing is that the Great Barrier Reef still is a resilient system. You know, it still maintains that ability to recover from disturbances. As encouraging as this seems, the new coral taking over is leaving the reef more vulnerable to future devastating impacts. The Institute head, Dr Paul Hardestry, spoke with ABC News about the report and was cautious that we're not in the clear just yet. The message that everyone needs to understand is that this is not the 1980s. That'll be the the easy thing to take away, that the coral cover is as good as it was in the 80s in many places. Yes. Are the underlying conditions the same? No, we're walking the tightrope. We've had some luck in the last few years. That isn't going to continue unless we really take a lot of action um, to change things, to turn it around. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.